Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exist to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name is Tim. And my name is Marshall. You thought I was going to let you intro because you have the paper. Well, you did without the paper, Tim. I'm without I'm genuinely I'm genuinely impressed. I mean, I guess I shouldn't be. I mean, you preach without notes every Sunday, so I've only, I've only said it over a hundred times. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope you had it down by this point. I kind of liked doing it last week, but it somehow it just feels more right when you do it. So. So that's, that's cool. That's cool. Um, <laughs> how are you doing, Tim? I'm doing all right. Just a, a show notes because we don't have our clock in front of us last, like we did last time. Yeah, I Check see that. Clock. I checked where the cl- we are. All yeah. right. Okay. Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm feeling much better. Yeah. Good, 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 good. Yeah. And uh, it's been, you know, an interesting couple of weeks. The, the almost lockdown that we find ourselves in. Um, you know, certain things locked down, certain things not. We've been able to do Sunday service. Grateful for that. Uh, that mm-hmm. leeway there um, meant we didn't have to make so many hard decisions. Um, so that is fantastic. And and uh, looking forward to having you back here at the office and and uh, not having to to preach and lead music at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've had to do that before, but I've never done it for three services. It was, you know, that's, that's Superman. Well, and then to to cap it all off, my my grandparents and my great grandfather. We we had missed Christmas time with them because my great grandmother had passed away. It was a whole thing. Anyways, so they came over for lunch uh, mm-hmm. after after uh, after church after the third. They attended the third service and came after. So it wasn't even like after three worship sets and three sermons i could just like go take a nap it was like now i gotta play host for a few hours (laughs) and my grandma bless her heart i love her so much godly godly woman but just wants to talk about the deepest things of course right she wants to talk family theology and all this stuff and i'm just like i need to sleep (laughs) but uh anyways it was good it was good it was good so nice nice so Let's talk about church fathers. Let's do it. The earliest of church fathers. Yes. Time-wise, we're just past the brink of 70 AD. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're still in the first century, creeping into the second century. Yeah. Our, our episode kind of straddles first and second, I, I think. Yeah. 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 And uh, where are we at? Where are we at as far as Rome? What's going on in Rome? Yeah, so as we kind of mentioned, uh, after that whole crazy business of the year of four emperors, um, Vespasian takes over in Rome and establishes a new dynasty, the Flavian dynasty. Um, He rules for like 10 years, does some pretty cool stuff, builds the Colosseum, does a lot of reforms, expands the empire, kind of reestablishes some stability, but then he dies. Uh, succeeded by Titus. So he was the guy who actually took Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Uh, Seemed to be a good ruler following in the footsteps of his father, at least from kind of a Roman establishment perspective anyways. Right, probably not from a Jewish perspective. (laughs) No, 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 not from a Jewish perspective, that's for sure. Uh, But after only two years, he dies of a fever. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, he's not particularly old, but but, uh, the fever takes him. So his younger brother Domitian takes the throne. And uh, he rules from 81 to 96. Domitian likes being in charge. Let's put it that way. Uh, He gets a little domineering. He gets authoritarian, even by Roman emperor standards, which which says something. Um, He, towards the end of his reign, he really cranks up the persecution for Christians. Um, and, And his reasoning for that is he's trying to kind of call back to the um, the the original core Roman values and morals, and that's kind of his thing he wants to push. He actually takes on religious titles for himself, and he really wants to kind of go get back to the roots of what it means to be Roman. And, and the Christians aren't down with that, obviously, for a variety of reasons. Yeah, and here's the, here's the interesting thing about a return to Roman roots, right? A return to Roman roots. 
Caesar Augustus, mm. I would say, is Roman roots. Mm. Right? That's the, the root of the emperor. Of the empire, yeah, for sure. Um, and the reason he was executed by his best friends was because they believed that he was in danger of taking on too much power mm. and individual esteem. Oh, you mean Julius Caesar, by the way? Julius Caesar, sorry, sorry. Yeah, sorry. that's okay, that's okay, yep. Julius Caesar. The, the issue is he's becoming too powerful. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're almost saving him from himself. Right. <laughs> because Rome, Rome is not about one person. Mm-hmm. And no one person is going to have that much power. Mm-hmm. And now, in our return to Roman roots, mm-hmm. we have someone who is taking on more power than any emperor before him in those roots eras would have ever claimed. Yeah, yeah. He no, would that's... have. He would have definitely been taken out of his seat. Yeah. <laughs> well, and Domitian eventually is uh he's essentially assassinated by his own officials uh then so there's this brief period where this guy named nerva takes the throne he's kind of uh, a fan like the senate uh which continues to exist but hasn't really had much influence since the emperors kind of come to the fore they they like this guy uh but he's already an old old man by this point he dies and then trajan who was adopted and i'm using air quotes i know you can see my air quotes but but the audience can't um trajan takes over what we have to understand about uh roman succession is a lot of times the emperor who is quote unquote the son of the previous emperor is not the son of that emperor mm-hmm. in in the roman understanding of family to be adopted means full sonship Full sonship, right? Which actually might lend a, a bit of our, our our understanding to you know how we how we understand when when Paul is talking about being adopted, um, yeah. and right. and and so that that might be a helpful kind of application for us. But but so Trajan is not Nerva's biological son, and he's yeah, adopted. It's nepotism. Yeah, it is. It is. It's nepotism, but it's not biological nepotism. Exactly, and and these guys are sometimes adopted in their thirties, in their forties, they are quote right. unquote adopted. Uh, yeah. And, they're, they're appointed and, and taken yeah. in as family and appointed to that end. Yeah. So Trajan rules for the next 20 years. And we'll talk a little bit about Trajan later on this episode. Cause there's an interesting document in relation to how they, he handled this Christian problem. Um, he expands the empire. I mean, even further, he's a true soldier emperor. This guy is not, he's not Nero you know, thinking he's the greatest artiste of all time and like, you know, singing songs and writing plays like this dude, this dude is, is serious. Um, but unfortunately that seriousness also applies to persecution against Christians. Um, and that continues under the following emperor, Hadrian, who he also quote unquote adopts, uh, his cousin and, uh, and again, s- similar approach and, and Hadrian, like, Hadrian kind of is the last emperor that falls within the events that we're going to talk about today. So uh, we'll maybe cut it off there, but um, there's a new line of emperors um, and they have a new policy uh, about how to handle the, the Christian problem. So that's what's kind of going on at the, at the Roman level. Um, yeah. Any, anything yeah, to add? The Christian problem is something that runs through all of that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, in in ebbs and flows and to varying degrees, but but the persecution doesn't let up mm-hmm. in a significant way under anyone. Yeah. Now we're still not at. Now people might be surprised by this because we always associate the heavy persecution with the early early church. Uh, mm-hmm. This is not as bad as it gets for the yeah. Christians by by a long stretch. It's bad, uh, but it's going to get quite worse in uh in the preceding centuries um but in any case it's it's still not good and on top of this mounting persecution i mean we talked we touched on this briefly last week but it's just a time of significant change in the early church they're kind of forced to grow up their jerusalem church is scattered 
um, the center of Christianity, which happened to also be the center of Judaism, is destroyed. Um, the apostles, those who are still standing, are being martyred, um, mm-hmm. mounting persecution. And so there's a, they need to adapt, essentially. They're forced to right. adapt. Right. Martyred and exiled. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's your leaders are being cut down where you once lived and operated is no longer available to you. So you're scattering, going to new places out of this. We get some new centers of Christianity. Um, three big ones. I would say there's, there's, there's many, but three yeah. big ones are Alexandria, which is in Egypt. Right. Um, one of the many Alexandrias named after our good friend, Alexander the great uh, Rome obviously in Italy and Antioch in Syria. So those are the three bigger ones um, that are kind of taking the mantle now that the Jerusalem church is essentially no more. Yeah. And and I think there's, there's evidence of God's providence Hmm. in this, right? That that Jerusalem was the center and, and, and so, so fixed in its location. Hmm. right uh but then because of persecution we have other places that just start scattering and popping up here and there and and it shows that the church is decentralizing and spreading Mm -hmm. right and so one way people will often say the church grows under persecution yeah which is quantifiably and qualifiably true yes right the the one of the ways that it's quantifiably true is that it there is this scatter when people need mm-hmm. to leave mm-hmm. they take their faith with them mm-hmm. and they evangelize where they are and that grows right right and, and in this point we, we still have uh the churches of revelation are still also very much a part of this mm-hmm. right ephesus Samaria, uh, smyrna um dietire those places are still a big part of this but but Mm -hmm. these places become really strong and and rome man that rome is a center of the church Mm -hmm. amidst all this going on i I know i said that at the end of last week Mm -hmm. but it's just incredible it's incredible that those people Mm -hmm. would stay there and and not only continue to live and worship there and serve that place that god has put them in but to be uh, a, a major leader in the church, yeah. um, raising up disciples, sending out missionaries, those kinds of things. It's just, it's just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're going to, we're going to chat briefly about a few of the kind of these earliest church fathers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the one thing that they all have in common is that they are bishops. They right. hold this office of bishop. So we're going to see a bishop in Rome. We're going to see a bishop in Antioch. Uh, we're going to see a bishop in Smyrna. Um, are kind of the three key guys that we're going to talk about in this episode. Mm-hmm. But we have to talk a little bit about what a bishop is, what it was then, what it became. Uh, because this is something that in the evangelical church, for the most part, uh, with some exceptions, I guess, um, you don't get a lot of talk about bishops. I mean, that no. seems to be something. I mean, what comes to my mind when I think bishop is I think that 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 marriage scene in the Princess Bride, <laughs> right? Marriage. I'm like, right. that's a bishop. Um, but that's not necessarily what a bishop was or even is, really. Um, but but let's talk. Let's talk about bishops. All right. I, I would say the first the first thing I would say is. The role of the bishop hasn't disappeared. Mm-hmm. We've mm-hmm. just changed this title. Right. Right. So in the early church, you and I, the work that we do, pastors, is going to be an equivalent. Mm-hmm. Right. Why did we change the name? My personal opinion is because in the Reformation, we just said everything that the Catholics use, we're not going to use. Right. And, <laughs> and so no one would ever call themselves a bishop. Right. Because right. That's too Catholic. Right. Right. And so right. they need a new name for it. Right. And so they 
come up with a new name. The Bible yeah. also uses other terms. Right. 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 Uh, and so when the Bible uses three, four different terms to discuss the role of elder overseer kind of a position, mm-hmm. um, then then they're going to be like, well, we have options and we're going to choose the option that they don't choose. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and that's, that's the biggest difference. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Essentially a Bishop was kind of the first among elders in yep. a local congregation of Christians, right? Which again, uh, operated differently, especially under times of persecution, because you didn't have, necessarily a church building and everybody publicly gathering together and all of these you know you had a scattering of congregations perhaps throughout the city who were all mm-hmm. aware of each other and interconnected in various ways and you would have elders that would be overseeing the function of of these different groups and then you know understandably like deacons beneath them kind of handling the more practical matters but you would have a bishop who would kind of be an elder of the elders who would be kind of set apart amongst that group as providing oversight for that community. So if we, right. if we think of it that way, then, then it makes more sense. Um, you know, we're not talking bishops in the medieval sense who held significant political, even military power, led armies and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. in the early church. Yeah, you're right. Bishops kind of uh, there's, there's a, a tighter connection with the role of, of uh of a, of a pastor, particularly maybe like a senior pastor, you might be more of a bishop than I am, but, uh, yeah. And you know, I would say too, like a lot of people, a lot of people I I've heard in, in the last few years complaining about this being the age of the celebrity pastor, right. Hmm. Hmm. Um, this idea that you have the guy who's not your local pastor, uh, but you still go to them for teaching. That person still has input in what's going on in churches all around and, and sure. how like, this is a new thing because of the internet and the age of the celebrity pastor. And that's what, that's not new. Yeah. Right. Like th- these guys that we're going to talk about are, are, are bishops, mm-hmm. um, for their local congregations. Sure. But they're also writing letters to other congregations Sure. to answer yeah. questions for them, to instruct them, to encourage them to change. Oh, yeah. Um, they're, they're famous even now, 2000 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, the, their focus, their, their primary work was for, uh, for their local congregation. They don't hold headship over, mm. lo- over foreign congregations outside of, of their group. Mm-hmm. but they do hold influence. Sure. Yeah. Right? They're respected for the office that they hold, the experience that they have, the insights that they have. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's not a, a centralizing of the church in the yeah. way that we would say, Oh, Bishop Catholics, the mm-hmm. center kind of a thing. This is, this is papacy and top down. And yeah, it, it's not like that at all. It's more like the celebrity pastor kind of insurance. Yeah. Like, I mean, if like, if a guy like John Piper wrote an open letter to Canadian Baptist churches, he doesn't actually dictate what we are going to do, but mm-hmm. I'd be interested in reading his letter and hearing what he has to say Yeah, you know, because and you know of what? who he is and what he's accomplished. Right. It, it's not even new here in the, the late first century because that's what the apostles were doing. That's why we have the apostles. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So anyway, let's talk about these guys. Okay. So the first one we'll talk about, I guess, is uh, probably the the earliest of the three, although admittedly the timelines can be a little bit sketchy. Mm-hmm. we're talking about a long time ago here folks so uh but and, and we're talking when we're talking timelines we're talking within a person's life so we're talking about like 10 15 years oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Of wiggle room so yeah. yes so we're talking so the first one is a, a guy named clement who becomes the bishop of rome um from 88 to 99 AD. this clement is probably mentioned in scripture itself in philippians 4 um so he is referenced by Paul. It's probably the same Clement yep. uh, was a young man when he's referenced uh, by Paul is an older man when he kind of comes to um, this position. Um, and he, ha- so he's operating in Rome, kind of overseeing the church that exists in, in the city of Rome. And, you know, he is writing letters. Now his letters um, were not, were not and are not considered to be scriptural of the same authority of what we see biblical teaching, but he is addressing leaders in other churches um, and trying to help guide them through difficult situations. Right. Uh, 
Yeah, one of the main things is a bit of a, a leadership crisis. Uh, so some people within the church in Corinth have kind of deposed some of the elders because of a difference of opinion. And Clement's emphasis, at least one of his emphases in in um, in his writing to the Corinthians, is essentially say, like, we, we, we hold the phone, guys, because there there should be um, there should be a respect for the leadership that was put in place. I mean, in in the case of the church in Corinth, put in place by apostles themselves, and mm-hmm. to say, you know, there there's an importance that needs to be underlined here of the church offices and those who are in authority, not to say that they're without fault or to say that they are to always be obeyed regardless of circumstances. But just because you don't like them isn't a justifiable reason to set them aside. Um, And that's kind of the emphasis or one of the emphases of of Clement's writing. And and I would say this about Clement and to a degree, it's going to take place for the church fathers throughout. Uh, They take a bad rap for divergent theologies in a way that I think isn't fair, right? So for example, um, anti-Trinitarians love Clement. They love to to grab hold of the things that he said and say, see, here's a man who said under Paul himself and and notice how he says things like God came to us as Christ, right? And notice Mm -hmm. what he says, notice how he says it, notice what he doesn't say that's that's not a reasonable measure yeah, right. and, and here's here's my reason for that would i ever word it that way no probably not but the reason i wouldn't word it that way is because i have two thousand years of historical precedent and discussion right. about trinitarian and anti-trinitarian theology right. that has informed the way that i learn how to talk about these things mm-hmm. and has shown me where people will try to take it if you word it differently right without that benefit yeah he says a thing that i would argue is not a wrong thing no 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 it's just probably not the best way because it can be twisted history has proven that to be true and so we word things differently to avoid the traps that other people fell into and so when we talk about these church fathers here's what's going here's what could happen it could be that your ears perk up and you're like, this guy said under Paul, I'm going to read his stuff. And you go online and you start reading about him. And then you watch a YouTube video where a guy's like, Clement was a heretic. Or you find this <laughs> modern heretic who says, see, Clement agreed with me. Right. Uh, and and I, I, yeah. think, I think where they sit in the span of history makes a huge difference. Oh, yeah. Right? Their context uh, is key. Right. So. Clement yeah. isn't writing with Mormons and Jehovah's Witness in mind because they wouldn't come to exist for another 17, 1800 years. He's not writing with Arius in mind. No. Yeah, you're right. right? Yeah, the that's... whole Arian controversy doesn't yeah. take place for hundreds of years. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. So, yeah. People who are, yeah, you're right. I think that's, that's a good thing to remember is as you, if you choose to explore some of these guys, a lot of the modern commentary will either lean on these guys are heretics because they phrase this a slightly wrong way right. or they left they left space open for a heretical interpretation or you'll have like you said heretics saying oh see he agrees with me just just no just just understand yeah. that the, 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 the historical the theological context right mm-hmm. uh, what what questions were were being addressed and were at stake are different than than where we're at now to some degree so yeah you also have a lot of retrospective catholic readings oh sure where they're going to go back and they're going to be like see this guy was the first this in the catholic church and especially when we get to ignatius um, oh yeah he's the first one to use the word catholic which just means universal Right. right he's talking about all the individual churches are part of a greater church and they're like see even as far back as ignatius there's been the catholic church um yeah that's yeah. that's also an issue right yeah yeah so anyways clement uh as far as we know uh served faithfully in rome uh eventually was banished from rome and sent to essentially a work camp in a stone quarry um and and there's you know tradition tells us that you know he did some things to help provide for his fellow workers there um, mm-hmm. striking a rock 
which sent water out, whether that happened or not. I mean, it's definitely, there's a parallel between that and uh, something that Moses did in the desert, which uh, when Moses did, it wasn't necessarily an entirely positive thing, but that's a whole other, that's another podcast. Um, But in any case, um, so there are these stories that crop up, whether they're legitimate or not. Was he sent to a work camp? Probably. Did he strike the stone and it came, water came out? Maybe. Uh, But ultimately, um, ultimately, you know, he led a bunch of these, his fellow prisoners, uh, to Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was faithful, you know, whether he was in the distinguished position of Bishop of Rome or as a slave in a work camp, uh, he proclaimed mm-hmm. Christ and as punishment, uh, they ended up just, uh, tying, uh, tying him to an anchor and throwing him into the sea is yeah. how, how Clement, uh, was, was martyred. Mm-hmm. So, that's yeah. that's Clement. <laughs> Unfortunately, the the endings of a lot of the stories of these characters that we're going to talk about in this episode and even in the the next couple, uh, they don't end well as far as earthly standards go. Uh, yeah, and, and I would I'd say most people, most people, a lot of people listening, somewhere in their home have a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs because it's just mm. produced and reproduced and right. passed yeah, yeah. around, and, and it, it's kind of like. My utmost for his highest. Those, right. right. Everybody's got a copy. They don't really know where it is kind of a thing. Uh, <laughs> it's not a pretty read. It's not a, no. uh, a light reading before you go to bed um, kind of a thing. But, but it is a great record of some of these things. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. Uh, next is uh, Ignate. We'll talk about Ignatius of Antioch. Um, from what we know, he converted to Christianity at a young age. Uh, Traditionally, tradition holds that he was actually a disciple of John. He actually learned under John. And mm-hmm. that's corroborated by a number of ancient sources. So it's a p- pretty safe thing to say, I think. Yeah, uh, I, I would say so. And, and I would say Clement was under Paul, mm-hmm. Ignatius under John. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of really cool Pauline parallels mm-hmm. with Ignatius. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a, he becomes a bit of a touring rock star little bit yeah yeah so so the romans the romans arrest him decide that they're going to bring him to rome for trial Mm -hmm. uh but that's a long journey yeah especially way back and so one of the things that they choose to do is to embarrass him and make a spectacle of him for his whole trip back to rome Mm -hmm. like every Mm -hmm. every time we need to stop for the night we're going to bring him out and be like see See what happens to followers of Jesus. You don't want to be like this guy. But Ignatius, in the same way that Paul has the letters to the Philippians and stuff like that saying, hey, this is for my personal benefit to be blessed to to follow in the sufferings of Christ. Mm -hmm. And I want to encourage you to stand strong in the same. Mm -hmm. Like that message gets out. And it turns out that when they show up in these towns, Christians flood from the villages and the countryside into town just to get a glimpse of Ignatius because he's such an inspiration to them in their faith. Right. Right. And, yeah. and basically what the Romans are doing is they're just going around these little towns all along the way, lighting fires. Yeah. Of hope <laughs> all the way to the end. Yeah. And, and Ignatius becomes like this, uh, this, this torch that just Mm. encourages and sparks the flame of faith in all of these little places that we're talking about where people have otherwise been exiled yeah because of the persecution for their faith yeah he becomes a centralizing focus a a face of the movement yeah and as he's traveling uh he's allowed to write letters just like paul was allowed to write letters and so he's thinking yeah, so he's writing letters to different churches, like encouraging them, correcting them, whatever it might be, you know, affirming them, like directing mm-hmm. them. Uh, there's some interesting things in some of these writings. Again, like they're not they're not scripture, but they're they're a helpful insight into what the priorities sure. were in the early church. One of the neat things about Ignatius's writing is he's one of the first Christian writers outside of the biblical text to explicitly say that the church no longer held the Saturday Sabbath, mm-hmm. but observed the Lord's day Sunday. And not as a might, command, but as an observation, as an observation, right? Yeah. Just, yeah. Not to say, Oh, you need to do this now, but this right. is a thing that we do. And, and, um, 
And so that's, that's, that's an important thing for maybe some of our listeners to understand when you're contending with, you know, certain Christian Sabbatarian groups that are very hard. No, it needs to be the Saturday. It needs to be the Sabbath. Um, no, this was not, it. they'll say, oh, it was an invention of Constantine. Once the Romans took over hundreds of years later, then they change it to Sunday because it's sun worship and it's this whole pagan thing. Right. And it's like, right. well, no, no, no. There, there are hints. There are hints in the biblical text itself to say there was a there was a shift that they met on the Lord's Day, um, and then outside of that, even on, on, a, on a historical basis, only a couple, you know, a, a single generation later, um, Ignatius is talking like, right, so we do the Sunday thing, not the Saturday thing, and that's already happening. Um, right. So, so just again, helpful thing maybe if if that conversation ever comes up to say. No, 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 no. This wasn't a Constantine thing. This wasn't a fourth century thing. This was a thing from the very beginning. Um, So helpful, helpful in that. Eventually he does get to Rome. Um, He's executed by uh, being thrown to the beast. Justin Martyr later on will say that it was specifically lions. Possibly it was even in the Colosseum itself uh, Mm -hmm. that he was fed to fed to the lions. Um, So that's our Ignatius of Antioch. But yeah, like you said, the (laughs) quote unquote rock star. Of early Christianity, I mean, like the Romans wanted to make a spectacle, and they did, just not in the way they had hoped. Right, right, it, <laughs> and and we're talking like forty years, thirty mm. to forty years after Paul. Right. Yeah. We're we're right. not talking. We're not talking like it's a hundred years past and all that kind of stuff. Right, yeah. There's right. been a lot of changeover in amongst the emperors, sure, mm-hmm. but we're talking possibly thirty, forty years since Paul, mm-hmm. and they're they're yeah. still like, hey, watch this. This will teach them. And it's the same, it's the same effect that Paul has on people. Exactly. And, and I just love how God's God takes what was meant for evil and uses it for good. Yeah. And uh, I think Ignatius is a, a great, a great look at that. Yeah. One of the things that I was going to say, like you said, you've said it for Clement and Pauly and, and Ignatius. Um, these things aren't scripture, but uh, a lot of times people will come really hard on that. Mm. They'll be like, oh, you know, these these early church writers, they weren't inspired, blah, 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 whatever. You know what? Neither is R.C. Sproul. Yep. He's got really good stuff to say. Yeah. Neither we may not agree with pastor, everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But he writes a sermon, Yeah. right? And yeah. and there's something hopefully to be learned in mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Uh, so, so this isn't a binary thing. We're not like mm-hmm. either they're inspired or they need to be disregarded. Uh, because th- the person who is is making a theological statement and saying these people aren't inspired and so they should be disregarded is also uninspired um, right <laughs> in, in a perfect way that's a great point <laughs> and, is, and is giving himself more credit than he deserves yeah that's right because it's like who are you <laughs> who are right. you compared to uh clement or ignatius <laughs> right wherever he studied and i'm sure he studied at a great institution right whoever his mentor was and i'm sure he's a godly man it wasn't john it wasn't paul <laughs> no, you never looked at your mentor yeah. and said you're the jesus never personally looked to yeah. your mentor and said you're the one i love yeah oh man a cool thing okay before we move on from ignatius just a cool thing again one of these may or may not be true things uh was referred to as uh, theophorus uh which translate loosely to born by god so there was a church there's a church tradition that he was either one of the children that Jesus took up into his arms, or he was the child who was placed in the midst of the disciples. Uh, whether it's true or not, who knows, but it's, it's, a, it's right. kind of a neat, it's a neat kind of thing. Like maybe. I mean, Here's maybe. where these neat things come from. Here's where these neat things come from. This, this has to be stated, right? There comes a point when the Catholic church as the Roman Catholic church, the entity mm-hmm. really right. starts growing. and these mystical things just become an obsession of right. the church, <laughs> right? And, and we have things like uh, people going on quests and they find three skeletons in a cave. It has geographically, it is not east of Jerusalem, mm. but they're like, it's, the, it's three skeletons in a cave. Where do we get the number three? It's the three wise men. 
<laughs> well yeah but they're it's west of jerusalem why would they because they went home by another route well that's a year's travel west doesn't matter this is it right gather the start, bones they're relics <laughs> right they start grabbing they start grabbing everything we'll get into the, it's it's much later turn we'll it into, into a it. necklace put it on yourself when you go yes. into battle and you'll defeat the heathens yeah it's a whole thing anyway. and, and they they also they also want to put these people at level of saint Right, and one of yeah. the things that they have to do to put a person level of saint is to attribute three miracles to that person. Right, right, and so some of these things become this sort of like, oh well, I heard a guy say one time, <laughs> because you can't leave Clement out of this. He has to be Saint Clement. Sure, you can't sure. leave Ignatius out of this or Polycarp out of this, and so. <laughs> When we say tradi- church tradition says grain of salt, grain of salt, it's guys. always with a grain of salt because yeah. there was a period where um, it, it's almost childlike. The whole wouldn't it be cool if, yeah, and the way the other kid on the playground will just run yeah. with it. Yeah. The next thing you know, you're standing in front of your mom telling her this story, and she's looking at you, and you're like, Yeah, you know what, that got out of hand, didn't it? Yeah, I'd say like it's it's possible that some of these church tradition things are true it's it also is, that's why def- we'll share them as possible yeah and it's also definitely true that some of them are totally made up uh right. i mean if you can co- go back to um the christmas episode about the the pickled children yeah probably didn't happen uh just gonna go out there on a limb and say probably right. didn't happen uh okay well let's talk about our third and final uh early church uh earliest church father uh polycarp who was also guy. also described as being uh, a disciple of John as well. Um, don't know a ton about his early life. Uh, ended up becoming Bishop of Smyrna. And so if you remember, Smyrna is one of the seven uh, churches that John writes to in the book of Revelation. Um, it's in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, um, mm-hmm. which you know there were a number of churches there. It was a, a central focus of Paul's original missionary journey. Um, we don't think today uh of turkey necessarily a lot a lot of christians who don't know their church history don't think of it as kind of a uh an origin or not an origin but i guess an uh like an early hub of christianity but it really really was like totally um so anyway so he was bishop of smyrna um he too ended up being martyred the story of his martyrdom is fantastic though yeah and you know what i i found yesterday uh that there was a movie about his life made oh really okay um yeah it, it's and it's on youtube so it's a free watch cool um it's like an hour and a half it, it's pretty well done I, I would say it's pretty well done um the two two things that i would take that i would say need to be considered in it mm. um one of them is that in the movie I would say Polycarp is like in his seventies. Okay. Uh, but famously Polycarp was a very old man mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at minimum 86. Yeah. Possibly in his nineties. Yeah. He was quite uh, and, and, and that, that matters because his final speech mm-hmm. uh, in, in his final speech, he's asked once more to, uh, to denounce, christ and to just say caesar is lord uh and he refuses to do it by saying 86 years i've served the lord and he has never done me wrong Mm. um and so the the question is does he mean the 86 years of his life or does he mean i've been a believer for 86 years right um and so he's he's really he's really old and and that matters uh and and it's kind of connected to the next thing that i i took a little bit of pause at um the pro council in the movie mm. is like really angry with polycarp all the time mm-hmm. and he's he's he really just sort of flexes on polycarp all the time and when i read the story of polycarp i see that this is something that the pro council is going to do he's willing to do it mm-hmm. but he doesn't like it yeah Right. Like like people like Polycarp and the pro council isn't excited to put such an old man to death. Yeah. Um, and, and so there's a little bit of. 
at least in my interpretation of the reading, there's a little bit of, man, don't make me do this. Mm, interesting. In, in yeah, the yeah. way that it takes place, uh, to which Polycarp says, you know what? You're going to have to. Yeah. Um, and, and, and before you do it, let me make you some dinner. Um, right. Because yeah. I understand the stress that's on you and I just, I'm going to make you some dinner. Oh, what a wonderful, uh, yeah. Yeah. What a wonderful testimony. It's like he's treating the one who's going to execute him with kindness. I've got uh, just a little bit more. I, I pulled out one of the quote, the quote that he made when he was about to be uh, burned at the stake. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of follows on from what you said about this 86 years I've served him. He's done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season. And after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Mm -hmm. He's like, look, I'm not afraid of this fire. You need right. to be afraid of a different fire. And, yeah. uh, you know, that, that style of preaching has gone out of, uh, out of fashion. Um, and I'm not suggesting that it needs to be, you know, judgment, hell and fire and brimstone all the time, but, you know, him just clearly saying, look, as terrible as this is going to be, what's coming for you is way worse. Yeah. And you need to know that. Yeah. Um, and that being a thing that, that he, you know, uses his last breaths to say, right? Yeah. And he's, he's dragged into the arena. His death is also covered in, in these legends, true or right. not, right, um, right. where he's, instead of being nailed to the stake where he's going to be burned, um, at this point, especially in the in the outside, they're kind of trying to get away from feeding people to animals because that's uncivilized. So let's just burn them in front of everyone. Um, so they they take him out to uh, to the center of the arena there in town, not the Colosseum, but the local expression of it, uh, and and he's. He's going to be nailed to the stake and he asks to be tied to the stake, makes a promise with him. Hey, I'm not going anywhere. This is my pleasure. Um, tie me to the stake and may the Lord grant me the strength to stay put for his honor. Um, because he felt himself blessed to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, legend has it, they lit the fires and a strange wind blew and the fires never touched him. Like he was just standing in the middle and the fire is all around him and wouldn't touch him until finally someone orders that uh, a soldier would reach through the flames and pierce him with a spear. Um, and at which point so much blood comes gushing from his body that all the flames are put out and he dies by the spear and is never touched by the flames. Hmm. Um, that's, that's the legend of the death right. of polycarp right um again probably a couple of grains of salt needed yeah take yeah take it for what you will but yeah and so in 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 the midst of these these um earliest church fathers and and their experiences and their martyrdoms and whatnot um there are extra biblical documents so so at this time as early as this is I want our listeners to know we have fragments of the new Testament that exist that were being circulated while these guys are operating. So yeah. the, the new Testament scriptures were being uh, copied and propagated uh, throughout the Roman world into different churches. So like that's from, a big part of what Polycarp was doing very, very early on. Yeah. Yeah. Like some of these guys may have even copied this stuff themselves by hand. Like it's mm -hmm. that, it's that intimate for the lives of these guys. In addition to their, their own personal writings, which, you know, were not given with the same level of apostolic authority. It was more of a kind of fraternal thing. Um, like, Hey brothers, I hear what's going on. You should probably do this differently kind of thing. Um, but there is an interesting document that I think we'll maybe spend a couple of minutes talking about the Didache. And the Didache, uh, the Didache? you want to say it? Didache. I don't know. I don't know how it's properly pronounced. <laughs> I could probably find out, but I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm thinking it's Didache. I'm, okay. I'm well, that's fine. On that. Okay. Yep. Let's see what, no, never mind. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it probably is. Okay. 
Tell us about the Didache, Tim. Okay, so so the the Didache is is basically a a manual for new believers, mm. right? It's a new members class um, that's that's being circulated around with some basic kind of instructions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's mentioned in writings of the early church fathers. I, mm. I'm off on this, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say it. I think it was Ignatius that mentions it. Mm-hmm. um and and talks about it in a way that just sort of says you know what i'm talking about right the right. dedicate the the teachings of the 12 apostles right and and it just disappears and it, it becomes this sort of thing of lure right like there was this document no one really knows what it says all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um and then there's a guy digging through ancient scrolls in a library who just happens to be theologically trained and trained in Greek, uh, who comes across a, a codex, a, a bound book that is amidst the preserved ancient books. And it's the Didache, uh, yeah. this thing that had been lost for, uh, for over 1500 years. The guy yep. finds it in like 1873. Yep. Um, yeah. It's crazy. And so, and so we're talking, we're talking like lost in the 100s, the second century. Right. And then in 1870 stinking three, this guy's <laughs> like, hey, is this what you've been looking for? Right. Sometimes we have that at our house where we're like, hey, does anyone seen that pumpkin patch library book that we got from, we can't find it. Oh, and you find it like after you've paid for it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's that kind of a moment. And mm-hmm. Uh, and so now he, I mean, he's taken it and translated it and, uh, and it's available. Uh, so it's kind of a cool find. It's, it's mm-hmm. how the early church would have instructed people. Now, yeah. there are all kinds of books about the Didache. The way people interpret it is kind of all over the place. To be honest, it's not that exciting of a read. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, it's a restatement of a couple of things. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a restatement of the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. blessed ours kind of a thing sure um there's the restatement uh and, and it, some expansion on it love your neighbor as yourself mm-hmm. right give generously don't be greedy those kinds of things um then there's a, a restatement of anticipate the coming of christ because he will return uh some some touching on things like baptism and communion uh, but, but really it's short. You can read it in 20 minutes. Um, it's, it might be interesting for its historical significance. It's not historic. It's not interesting because of anything that really stands out or blows your mind as different mm-hmm. or bizarre, uh, which is a good thing. Right. Yeah. Oh, totally. That that's a good thing because what that means is even without the document, the, the traditions of the early church have stayed intact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so I, I did write down a couple of things, copy and paste a couple of things that I, sure. I thought were particularly interesting. Uh, one says, "Be not a complainer." Hmm. I think we can all be down with the idea of not being a complainer. Yeah, but he draws a the author draws a a reference to why, right? It says, "My child, be not a complainer." since it leads to blasphemy wow not it could but because we all know that blasphemy comes from being a complainer Hmm. do not be stubborn or evil-minded because these things give birth to blasphemy Hmm. Uh, that seems like an escalation um Mm -hmm. i'd be interested in understanding the the train of thought there sure i haven't spent a lot of time meditating on it i'm sure uh, there's good reason for it, but that just is one that stood out to me as a bit of a jump. Um, my child, remember him who proclaims to you the word of God. Remember him night and day uh, and honor him as the Lord for whoever he's for wherever he speaks. The Lord himself is there. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in my mind, I know that a lot of people are going to take this and be like, oh, interesting that Pastor Tim is talking about how important it is for you to remember people. Mm-hmm. Uh in, I, I think this is important to me because it's it's not just pastors, right? Yeah. That's not what it's talking about here. And my mind essentially went back to those people 
my mom, mm. my Sunday school teachers, mm. those people who brought me up in the Lord mm-hmm. um, and, and giving an honor to them for that, mm-hmm. um, I, I think is, is a really great thought mm-hmm. uh, concerning yeah. baptism, baptize in this way. This is fascinating in a, from a nerd perspective. <laughs> Having instructed him in all these teachings, baptize the catechumen, the, the candidate, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, in running water. Mm-hmm. But if you do not have running water, then baptize them in other water. And if you cannot in cold water, then use warm water. Mm-hmm. Right? So running cold water is ideal preeminent ideal (laughs) uh it doesn't give any theological reason for it but last resort is standing warm water um Mm. we might have to just take the heater out of the baptistry (laughs) and leave the tap going oh man but if you if you have neither if you have neither Mm. then pour water on the head three times in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit and before the baptism, uh, let both the baptizer and the candidate fast, mm. and also any others who are able. Right. So that insinuates a few things. Uh, <laughs> it insinuates that the candidate is capable of fasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it definitely alludes to the fact that immersion is preferable. Mm-hmm. Uh Amongst amongst some other things, um, again, pouring it's, is not invalid. It pouring is not invalid. It's just uh, only it's last only went last resort when necessary. Um, so yeah, so these are some interesting things. Now again, because this isn't scripture, this isn't necessarily the the nail in the coffin of the Pado Baptist argument and method of sprinkling of infants. But it is interesting to note that in such an early document, no such reference is made in regards yeah. to candidates for baptism who aren't able to examine themselves and fast and that sort of thing. And also that, um, you know, sprinkling isn't even mentioned. It's, it's immersion and then pouring in if only absolutely necessary. Um, yeah. Again, I know that's not that's not going to convince anyone. If we have any Pado Baptist listeners, I know that's not going to sway you from your from your perspective. But uh, but it's a it thing. Seems to be the practice when it comes to fasting. This mm, is a this good is, one. This is an interesting one. Yeah. Don't let your fasts fall on the same days as hypocrites. They fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Keep your fasting to Wednesdays and Fridays. <laughs> Why we have no idea. I mean. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, it I might don't. it might be something of the the practice of the Pharisees at the time could be to fast yeah. on Mondays and Thursdays. Yeah, uh, and then then this is this is good too. Whoever comes and teaches you all these things that you have been taught before, anyone mm-hmm. that comes to you and just gives you things you've already learned, receive mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. But if a teacher himself turns aside and teaches a different doctrine that subverts what has been taught before don't listen to him Mm -hmm. if his teaching fosters righteousness and knowledge of the lord receive him as the lord so that that idea that even here in the first century they're saying what there is to know you already know Mm. and and teaching isn't about new revelations or new instructions even Mm -hmm. in the first century teaching is about edification Mm-hmm. And and for the new believer, a rudimentary yeah. kind of a thing. Yeah, uh, there's a a big deal made about the fact that there's end times stuff also in the Didache. It, it's just right. anticipate the coming of Christ. Sure. It, it's sure. nothing revolutionary one way or the other. Yeah, yeah. So there's another document that we want to talk about briefly before we we close the episode because I know we're gonna be we're gonna be north of an hour. I think by the time we're oh, done, we're good. We're good. Um. And it has to do with a, a correspondence that happens between one of the emperors I mentioned, Trajan, and a guy named Pliny the Younger. And Pliny the Younger, in 111, becomes governor of Bithynia. 
And Bithynia essentially is a province of Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, kind of along the northern part, if you look at a map of Turkey. And he has an issue. Uh, and the issue is that there's a whole lot of Christians living in his territory. Mm-hmm. And he knows what the law is. He knows what the, the policy is. And so he starts dealing with it. And so the way he addresses it is essentially this. If someone's accused of Christianity, they need to do, he makes them do three things. He makes them pray to the Roman gods. He makes them burn incense in front of the image of the emperor. Mm-hmm. And he makes them curse the name of Christ. Right. And if they refuse after three opportunities to do this, uh, they're either executed on the spot if they're not a citizen, if they are a Roman citizen, which remember, keep in mind, only a fraction of people who lived in the Roman Empire were actually citizens, like less than 10%. Um, then they would be shipped to Rome and, right. and face trial there. Um, but the problem for Pliny, like, so he's doing this because he's like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And but, it's not uncommon. This is this is the same kind of thing that happens oh yeah. for Polycarp and, and oh yeah, yeah. This is the norm. This is the the normal practice. But right. he has a bit of an issue because he he doesn't really know why he needs to be doing this, like on a practical level, right? He's like, essentially, the issue for him, or what seems to be the issue for him in his in his correspondence is, like, what are they actually doing that's wrong? Like, right. why, why are we doing all this stuff? Why are we going through all this trouble to root out this group of people who aren't, like, they're not really posing an existential threat to the Roman Empire. And so he writes to the emperor, who is Trajan at this point, and Trajan replies. Trajan actually gets back to him, uh, which is, I mean, must, must have felt nice for Pliny the Younger. Um, and Trajan tells him a few things. He says, don't he says she tells him don't go looking for them right like don't at uh, this uh, this uh, this is at this stage remember there will come a time where people will seek out christians uh but he says at this point don't go looking for them it's not worth the energy or the resources but if they're accused then go through these tests um mm-hmm. but if they're accused anonymously don't bother with the accusation because it sets a precedent that that's the one right, bit that's because that's one of the things that Pliny complains about yeah, he's like, people... I got I got all these people showing up to me with these anonymous letters and a list of everyone they don't like. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> I actually I like that little bit that Trajan has to say. Um, if people want to make an anonymous accusation, don't take it seriously. Um, mm-hmm. I, I kind of take that for in my own life, not just with accusations, but even with criticism. If people mm-hmm. don't put their name behind it, it means nothing. Um, mm-hmm. If you want, if if you have something to say. Um, Put your name on it. And I'm not saying that in specific, like not that I've received any anonymous criticism recently for my terrible sermon or something like that. But just as a rule of thumb, I mean, there, there's too much going on in this world to deal with people who won't put their name on something. So yeah. uh, that, that I do appreciate uh, that, that Roman aspect too. You know, if people, if, if, if you're just getting anonymous accusations and lists of names, uh, don't, don't bother. Uh, it's not, mm-hmm. not worth your time. Right. Right. Yeah, and, and I, I think what you see in there is, one, you see that the persecution is historically taking place. Yes. You see that it's not just this bitter, angry blood fest. No, no. The way that, the way that it was with Nero, who, took, who it was very personal for him. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about these ebbs and flows, uh, it was very different. Um, we also see that even though it, these guys... Are, are riding in this very impersonal way. It, it, it's, it's not their own soapbox. Right. Um, it doesn't mean that the punishments aren't severe and harsh. Oh, they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Like, like these guys, these guys are going like, no, don't seek it out. I mean, if, if it comes to you and someone's making a spectacle, you got to do something because that's the law. Mm-hmm. So just do what you've got to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Which sounds like a pretty soft take. But the do what you have to do is light the person on fire publicly. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> feed right. them. Don't you have any wild animals to feed them to? Um, mm-hmm. That's that's really the, I, I would say, the sort of paradox of it all. Mm-hmm. That in some ways, and, and you know, it's not, it's not that different than the crucifixion of Jesus, mm-hmm. right? Where you, mm-hmm. you, look, you look at a Roman proconsul mm-hmm. who says, this guy's not done anything wrong. What's the point in this? He doesn't want anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. But 
he's got to do something. So he's like, whatever. And, and it's crucifixion, mm-hmm. right? We're not talking about a fine or a, an overnight stay at a local jail. Um, yeah, these, the, the Romans are, are dealing with it. Some of them more personally than others. Sure. But always severely. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the only way. Romans kind of have one gear. <laughs> and it's 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 go hard go hard or go home um yeah and i think they like what what i what i got when reading the the a bit of the i mean the translation of the of the interaction back and forth um it's this kind of understanding that like at this point the christians aren't an immediate threat to the peace and safety of society right like 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 um Pliny even notes like it's like yeah they take vows to say that they're not going to like murder or commit adultery or steal, so right. like there's a sense in which these people are like more moral than your average Roman citizen. Yeah, honesty is a virtue for them. The problem is that because they won't bow, like they won't offer sacrifices to Caesar, which is the symbolic gesture of subservience to Rome to say. The Roman establishment, the Roman authority is supreme because they won't do that. Then they are a threat to the ethos of Rome. The values and principles of Rome might Mm -hmm. line up with the values of Christianity in certain areas, but not in all areas. And for that reason, the Christians are not going to, to support the Roman way in the way that it's expressed. And that is the problem. The problem yeah. is not that they're, hey, these people worship Jesus. How dare they worship Jesus? That's, that's not why they're being persecuted. The reason they're being persecuted is because they don't see Rome as the highest authority. And they don't immediately just hold on to take the values of the Roman state and Roman culture and say, these are our own. We hold to these just as tightly as anyone else does. They say, no, there's a higher authority and where those, where those teachings or where those principles or morals or whatever diverge, we're going to choose Jesus over politics. We're going to choose Jesus over culture. Yeah. And yeah. Go ahead. No. And I was going to just going to say like, and not that the, I, I hate it when when modern day Christians, particularly in the West, kind of say, "Oh, we, we're being persecuted," it's just like the early church were being persecuted. It's nothing like that. At this, mm-hmm. like it's it's not. But the pushback that we get, and whatever whatever negative attention that we get from the culture, or even from political institutions or legal institutions, and we're seeing some, at least here in Canada, we're seeing certain documents and legislation coming through that it seems to be trending in that direction that's what it is people are not upset that christians follow like follow christ they're not upset that we sing songs and that we pray and that we read the bible and that we love jesus the the concern is that christian people aren't necessarily going to toe the line with the new norms and new values that are right. being pushed by the culture in which we live and right. i mean it's it's, and, it's not hatred because you love jesus no it says it's saying we as a society have decided that these are our values and you have to be on board with it or else yeah so whether that's a, the sexual ethic whether that is uh the abortion subject whether you know whatever whatever it might be right these issues these kind of come to the forefront because they've kind of been center stage over the last couple of years um, or a couple of decades i guess but that that's what it is it's to say if you don't recognize a, a trans woman as a true woman then shame on you then you are you are out of line with what our society deems to be true and that is a that is a sin right in the eyes of the government i mean yeah punishable punishable offense. yeah punishable yeah. And, offense and i think that the heartwarming side of it all like the part that gives that gives me the the chills and the hope in it uh one thing that that pliny and trajan both agree on is that all you have to do is ask them to say caesar is lord 
because they expressly say because that's a compromise that no true christian would make mm-hmm. right they th- their point is a lot of people would look to this and say no this person has committed an illegal act that is punishable by death mm-hmm. and and the only test you have is you're going to give them three or four words to repeat after you and if they if they say it then they're innocent and if they don't they're guilty that's not enough of a test but these guys agree as leaders of rome no mm-hmm. that's plenty mm-hmm. because the devotion of a christian would never allow him to lie to lie on this or to mm-hmm. to spin it in some kind of a thing mm-hmm. their recognition of the devotion of the local church is is pretty astounding mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i and I, that's interesting too right that they're they're so sure that the christians will not um will not say those words that that that's enough right and mm-hmm. and and again it's nobody is asking nobody is asking the church at least where we are in canada to say trudeau is lord um and 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 there's been a lot of political stuff floating around the internet that that says oh well this particular issue or or this situation is is essentially that it's it's not um, mm-hmm. so I don't want to draw straight lines where straight lines ought not to be drawn, right. but, um, we just as Christians need to know, need to be reminded of who our Lord is. And that doesn't just have implications how we govern our lives privately, but it could potentially have implications in, in the public sphere. And we have been blessed in the West for some time. For that not to be an issue that we have to deal with. Um, I pray that it won't be in the future, but it could be. And I think the application for us is to just remember who our Lord is. And, and again, we, we aren't contentious for, con, for, for contention's sake. Uh, we aren't disrespectful uh, of the authorities that are in power over us. But when push comes to shove, we know who our Lord is. And I think that's just. And we're, we're not doing. hopeless for the future of God's church. No, no. Because it, we see we see that the church has been through uh, what, what God has brought the church through. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and how he grew the church through it. So yeah. I, I think in all of the discussion of uh, how bad things were and in whatever glimpses of parallelism might be drawn, I think mm-hmm. the takeaway is not fear, but hope. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's Why don't true. You read us out. Yeah. Well, I appreciate everyone here. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada. And it's produced by our good friend, Alex Walker. Take care, everyone. See you later.